0: Hi everyone, just a note here, we're so glad that you've joined us for season two of Further Reading. Like many of you, we've been working from home, and while I have fabulous help from my editor, Samantha Hepperly, on the days when she isn't available for recording, I've had a couple of my own tech crashes. So please forgive our less than perfect recordings, and many thanks to Sam for all of her hard work in fixing them up. Welcome to Further Reading Craft, Creativity, and the Writing Life, a podcast from the University of King's College MFA program. I'm your host, Jillian Turnbull. On today's show, we talk to JB McKinnon. Many of you know JB from his best selling work, The Hundred Mile Diet. That book set him on course to be a prolific author who traffics in big ideas. Challenging our preconceptions and encouraging us to try new ways of being in the world are at the core of his work, as are his love of animals, the environment, and the natural world. He has written for The Atlantic, The National Observer, The National Post, and Orion Magazine, and his nonfiction titles include The Once and Future World and Dead Man in Paradise, which won the Charles Taylor Prize. His most recent book, The Day the World Stops Shopping, published in 2021 by Random House, challenges us to think about a post-consumption world and what that would mean for the economy, the environment, and our understanding of human nature. As with much of his work, it's a thought experiment, one that required wrangling abstract ideas into a highly readable and engaging book. Today, JB talks to us about that process, and we get into how he thinks about his research, his reading audience, and his character portraits too. Well, hi, JB, welcome to Further Reading. It's great to have you with us.
1: Thanks so much, really happy to be here.
0: Well, I'm excited to talk to you about your writing process because it seems very intricate and perhaps even difficult at times. which of course is a feature of nonfiction fiction writing and, and journalism, but in particular, because you're going into big concepts, big ideas, and often um, a lot of uh, research and travel as a result. So uh, I, I'm very excited about our conversation. Maybe to get things going, we could just talk about your background, how you came to be a writer, what got you into the field and, and perhaps what keeps you here.
1: Sure. Uh, I, I guess I was another of those writers who read and wrote a lot as a child, but I didn't really imagine myself becoming a writer. Um, In fact, by the time I left high school, I was imagining myself becoming a marine biologist and went off to university and signed up for the student newspaper just as a hobby, you know, something for fun and maybe make some connections with some other people. And I just plunged right into that at ended up spending a lot more time working on my uh, student newspaper work than I did on the rest of my assignments and really realized that I, I really enjoyed this opportunity to engage with the big issues of the day and the grand narratives of the day. And, um, also I was, I was really, really shy. I mean, I was what you would definitely call socially anxious today. And, um, being a journalist gave me a role that i could play in society in the same way i guess that you have these very shy actors who are able to play roles in front of the world Uh, journalism kind of had that function for me and then kind of the the end of this story or the next phase of this story is that i i at one point had a mix-up with my student loans, and I wasn't able to go back to university as planned one year. And so I just thought, well, you know, I took a job at a cafe restaurant and thought I'd try a little freelancing, and I have never stopped.
0: Wow. What year would this have been? Oh,
1: 1992? 1993? Something like that. (laughs) So, I mean, I was, yeah, I was, uh, I think I was 22 years old when I started freelancing. And i've made my living mainly from that ever since
0: <laughs> <laughs> that's really something i you know I, I react with um excitement i guess because that's a, a risky decision to be making now uh with the landscape of journalism as it is how did it look back then
1: it looked at least as bad and maybe worse uh it was I mean, at that time, I think the reason that I became a freelancer and sort of an independent journalist was because there was there wasn't it wasn't like there was any other choice I was going to be able to make. There were very few job openings in the media at that time, and I didn't have a degree in journalism or, or a degree of any kind. So I really just had to make my way on uh, pitching and reporting stories to anybody who might take them. And I'm not going to suggest that it was an overnight success or that uh, I acquired a a great deal of riches in those early years, but it was enough. I mean, I enjoyed the work and it didn't actually take too long before I was able to give up the cafe restaurant job and, um, you know, really just make my living freelancing. And, and that uh, I think really the thing I have to thank for that is that there was this thing, called the alternative press, um, a network of mostly weekly newspapers that, um, that covered issues that the mainstream press at that time was not covering. And I got into that world and was able to, you know, make my living doing that without needing to pursue a job in the mainstream press, which would have been hopeless in any case.
0: Hmm. And do you think that that has shifted now to being a, a kind of rich world online of of places you can pitch to and and have good relationships with? Has that shift? Does it seem to equal what was there in the weeklies before?
1: Yeah, I think so. I think uh, I think the orientation of the of a lot of the digital media today is somewhat different. I think a lot of it is more of an advocacy press and less of an alternative press, but uh, but I think the the opportunities are somewhat similar. I think the big challenge when I entered was to get a byline anywhere, but if you could get a byline, you'd get a paycheck. Um, There wasn't necessarily a very big paycheck, but you'd get a paycheck. Now I think it's very, very easy to get a byline and it's a little more difficult to get any kind of worthwhile pay for that byline.
0: Mm-hmm. And and then, of course, the editor-author uh, relationship develops from that and becomes kind of central to your ongoing work, I imagine.
1: Yeah, so I ended up, I started out writing for a magazine called Monday Magazine that was really more like a weekly newspaper, but uh, kind of designed like a magazine. It ran feature-length stories and things like that, and it was one of these alternative press outlets. From there, I ended up uh getting invited to start doing work with Adbusters, which was was and is a countercultural magazine in Vancouver. So I started crossing from Victoria to Vancouver to edit and write for them and kind of went from there. And But all along, I, I did freelance feature writing, you know, wherever I might be able to land that kind of writing. But, uh, you know, mine was a pretty slow and gradual process. I didn't have a ton of confidence as a writer, I think, because of you know, my origin story, Um, you know, I didn't have the degree, I didn't have contacts, I didn't have experience, and so I spent a lot of time not that confident about getting my work out there, but I got work out there, and I kept at it, and uh, made a living of a sort out of that. (laughs) (laughs) I've always said that my form of journalism is a good life, but not a good living, and that's still true.
0: Yeah. Yeah yeah I, I like that it's uh, it's very true I think no matter what kind of writing you're doing so um, what do you think are the advantages of being an independent journalist then what what kind of freedoms has it afforded you as a writer?
1: Oh I guess I mean I think I'm probably unusual in the sense that I don't think I've ever written a story that I didn't want to write uh, as a journalist I think that's that's probably pretty unusual so being... Being an independent has always allowed me to follow my own interests, follow my own path. If I can find a way to make the things I'm interested in make sense to uh, to an editor or publisher, then I, I can do that. And, um, yeah, I mean, it's been a tremendous freedom.
0: Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um- so if you okay, so you're writing stories only that you want to write, but I guess how do these stories come to you? Are they um, do they sort of come up in conversations you're having with other people? Do they come from things you're reading, um, just something in the world that kind of intrigues you and you want to follow that thread. Like what's a kind of typical way that a story arrives in your mind?
1: I think I think it's that latter point that that a thread. I start to pull on some kind of thread out there in the, out there in the public discourse or in the universe around me, or, and I start to think that there's something in that that, you know, I might want to explore, that I might want to, I might have something to say about. So I've, I've come to think of myself as a, a grand narratives reporter. And by Mm. that, I mean that I'm like, I'm really interested in these stories that have something to say about big ideas or the grand narratives that that underlie society as a whole, but I like to approach those things through just concrete on the ground reporting. So my research always starts either with some big idea that I'd like to look at through a story, if I can find one, or I see a story and I think it will have something interesting to say about a big idea Um, that's usually the start of my research process. And then from there, I, um, I mean, maybe an example would help. So not long ago, I wrote the story for the Atlantic about the North Atlantic right whale. And the story definitely started with an idea I was interested in, which is that it might be time to start applying the idea of animal welfare to wild animals, you know, not only to domestic animals and pets and livestock and so on but but to wild animals as well um so that kind of came out of the ether conversations with biologists and animal welfare people and things like this it was sort of an idea that was starting to bubble up i thought it was interesting so i started searching around for a specific story that might help me explore that idea and i settled on north atlantic right whales because uh because we make their lives miserable in a whole mm. bunch of uh, a whole bunch of ways um, from noise pollution to uh, toxins in the water to uh, to entanglements and fishnets and so on so my research began then with this kind of deep dive into academic research and thinking around animal welfare and this idea of possibly extending that to wild animals and then I went out and did specific field reporting on the story of North Atlantic write whales and what they were going through, calling sources, going out to see the whales, um, all of those sorts of things until I was ready to write.
0: Wow. So that that brings up a whole bunch of questions for me. One is I've I've read some of your writing on whales, and I am I found myself devastated by the descriptions of and they were just tiny little sentences of of what we have put them through that kind of get dropped into your story here and there. How do you balance what you're hearing about and what you're seeing against the presentation, which is highly emotional in nature and will generate emotion from your readers? How do you kind of balance that against the presentation of data and the ultimate, for lack of a better word, like agenda you have with the story?
1: I mean, I kind of take the opposite approach to say, I don't, I don't remember how you pronounce this, PETA, PETA. you know, the mm-hmm. animal rights organization. I kind of take the opposite approach to what they do, which is they tend to lead with the most, uh, the most horrific images and imagery that they can. And I tend to think, well, I don't know that anybody would want to, you know, if I lead with that, I don't know that anybody's going to want to hang around for 4,000 words of exploration of what's going on in this circumstance. So in that North Atlantic right whale story, for example, I pretty much just, uh, in fact, I don't just pretty much, I outright say to the reader, this is going to get worse, but we're we're not going to go there just yet. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and I try to go from sort of gentler material and context and, and, uh, kind Of warm people up to where they're going, and then in the end, I say, Okay, brace yourself. Here's the devastating ultimate reality. And I mean, I had very good feedback on that article, and a lot of people actually thanked me for taking that approach. Um, they felt that it was humane to them as well, mm-hmm. um, you know, hopefully, uh, as, as well as the whales themselves. So, I, I mean, I'm but I wouldn't say that that's there's no that's not like a pattern that I follow all the time or anything like that with each story. I just think particularly with environmental stories, I just think what is the challenge to between what are the potential challenges between me as the writer and the, the audience as readers and how do I, how do I try to remove those barriers?
0: Hmm, Okay. And then what about yourself? Like you're encountering, you know stories I guess with a lot more detail that could be emotionally devastating to you how do you kind of care for yourself in that process
1: I think journalism is my form of self-care so it's uh, (laughs) I feel better I feel better learning about and writing about these things than I do remaining ignorant of them or uh, failing to explore them so in a way um you know, in a way it feels better, I guess, to, to, you know, to know about these things and to be able to say something about them um, than it is to, to, you know, divide myself off from them. So uh, it's, yeah, oddly enough, the whole, I write about a lot of hopeless stuff, but the whole practice of it is for me uh, curiously hopeful.
0: Hmm. That's a great way to think. So the, the other question I had that came out of, of um, your description of doing that particular story is, you're working with a big idea, or you have a, a kind of um, underlying principle or or goal um, in, in writing a story like this. But do you find that as you do the research, you get pulled in different directions, and things very quickly become Potentially ten- tangential in all kinds of different ways, and do you find yourself distracted by those tangents, or are you able to stay focused on that big idea as you cruise through your research?
1: I, as with pretty much everything <laughs> that I write, I have a process for that. <laughs> so, okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, what I do is I, um, it's a pretty specific process. I, I, I constantly. Uh, write and revise a one to two sentence description of what I'm working on and what I hope it will say to the reader or get across to the reader. So I'm constantly revisiting that so that I stay on the ball. And I mean, then if the story is shifting, um, then at least I've kind of consciously remarked on that shift. Mm. And if, you know, in the process of going back and revisiting that kind of uh, mission statement for the, for the article or for the chapter, I'm, you know, I'm constantly reminded that these things are tangential and these things are essential to the business at hand. Um, and it really, it really helps me to calve you know, cal off all of that information that, that I'm not going to be using and you know, really to pick out the stuff that I want to use. And, um, the only part of this process where, you know, I don't have, I don't, the part of the process I don't have a process for is starting out. So, you know, if I have this general sense, I want to write something about wild animal welfare, then I certainly, my research will certainly sprawl at the outset, uh, as I try to find the specific thing I'm going to say about that. And, the story or stories that I'm going to tell or the arguments I'm going to make, um, in order to do that. So that part for me still inevitably sprawls, but, um, you know, maybe that's just how it is.
0: Yeah. So do you find that you're writing, like, say partway through your research, you're going to sit down and and write a little fragment of the article and, and see what you need to research next. Does that ever happen?
1: Yeah. I mean, and sometimes, but part, part of that process I described of writing a couple of lines that describe, it's like a subtitle, right? Or like a deck. Right. Um, yeah. I can actually use that to, mm. to kind of parse out all of the main areas of research that I need to do, because if it's not in that statement of what I'm trying to get across, then, um, then it's out. And if, if it's included in that and I don't have research that covers off some aspect of that, then I know I need to do that research. So, but um, certainly when I'm writing, I will still hit research holes where, but it t- it, that, that tends to be more small stuff, like, mm-hmm. oh, I need a little bit more about this character or a little bit more about this, uh, this process needs to be explained or things like that. But generally not the, you know, I have a pretty good sense of the big picture material that I need to, to research.
0: Hmm, okay, As I go? yeah. So my next big question, I guess that stems from this and I'm, I'm asking you so many questions about your research because your books are packed full of research and they seem like very long um, and and very weighty projects. Um, so in your most recent book, The Day the World Stopped Shopping, I just found this one little paragraph and I really thought about how you must have put it together and I'll just read it to you. So we haven't even begun to talk about what we throw away. The annual output of garbage in the United States and Canada, loaded into trucks, would circle the equator 12 times. Americans used to toss out far more stuff than Europeans, but nations like Germany and and the Netherlands have caught up. An average household in France throws away four times as much waste as it did in 1970 about a fifth of our food ends up in the garbage worldwide and remarkably this is a a problem in poorer countries as well as richer ones dogs and cats used to help us dispose of leftover food today they have their own consumer goods from beds to toys to clothing to pet tech products a market worth more than 16 billion dollars in the u.s alone our pets produce their own Trash, and I, I must say, like as a consumer, of course, this hit home for me because I tend to do most of my consuming for my cats. Um, but, uh, but really, my question about that paragraph is, how did you take all of those statistics around the kind of um, ratio of garbage that countries have to each other, and then the the way that garbage has changed over several decades? I assume a paragraph like this consists of a whole lot of background research is that the case? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's <the> case. <laughs> okay, um, so then you're faced with a craft problem, right? Like how do you present that to us as the reader and how do you make us trust you with when you don't have things like footnotes and and um and citation lists for all of that all of those statistics?
1: Mhm. Um I mean the way that I approach that kind of thing. A a lot of those things just turn up because I've, you know, I'm doing broad research on consumption and consumerism. Um, So if I suddenly need to say something about waste and garbage, then I can kind of sweep through my research and see what there is in there from, you know, all the various sources that I've drawn on. And I mean, maybe a little inside secret about that passage is that originally I was going to have a chapter about waste In the book, but I ultimately wasn't satisfied with it and I removed it. Uh, But it left me, you know, I I had a lot of stuff uh, because I'd prepared most of a chapter. And uh, so I was able to draw on quite a lot of stuff. And the way I decide what to include is pretty much just the first thing I pay attention to is what stands out to me, what affects me. Like if I read a number, does it, you know, does it make me feel something or not? If it does, then you know, it's much more likely to get into the book. And, and then the second thing I think about is well, exactly what kind of work do I need to do on behalf of the reader? Like, what do they need to know? Oh, you know, what haven't they heard before? What will surprise them? What will entertain them? You know, what will give them the clearest sense of the reality of the problem, those sorts of questions. So I approach it all. Um, I approach it all like that. So In that paragraph, I think mostly I'm just trying to really quickly get across, you know, in a few, hopefully interesting numbers, just how incredible the scale of, of, uh, consumer waste is and the dogs and cats part is really just that little bit. That's hopefully, um, just interesting or uh, shocking or entertaining at least. Right. And so I'm, you know, I'm always kind of thinking about all of these different things that, that the numbers have to do. And in terms of the footnotes and citations, um, I do try to, I do try to tell people where my information is coming from often enough that I hope that they at least subconsciously start to think whenever, you know, whenever he does drop in where the information came from, the source looks really solid, um, and so hopefully they start to trust me on that. And and um, I mean, generally speaking, I guess I'd I'd say I haven't heard from a lot of people who say like I don't believe you or you know I don't <laughs> you don't seem like a credible guy. Um, <laughs> I think there's you know there's people are able to see that 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 a lot of research has gone into these books and and uh, and I think they tend to treat it as as credible information
0: yeah, and you build it into the narrative too you know you're taking trips and you're sitting with experts and you're you know you're really kind of placing that research into the story that you're telling us, so that that really helps amplify it without you know sending home a whole bunch of statistics that we have to try to remember
1: yeah, well, I think a stats is really just like I say, I mean they need to do specific work. I don't want people to feel like, um, you know, just like you said, I don't want people to feel like, oh, I need to, I need to remember all these things. <laughs> it's yeah. more, it's more, you know, to to give people a sense of scale or, um, or a sense of how bizarre the the nature of our consumption is in the in the case of this book, or, or as I say, just to to pull out a. A tidbit that I hope will amuse or entertain because these books are, you know, full of bleak information and, <laughs> and I, you know, I do, I do put a lot of thought into, uh, how to, how to take care of the reader along the way.
0: Yeah, you I, I do get that feeling from you. You're very considerate of the reader. Um, you understand that there are things that are human nature that are socially and culturally constructed that are, you know, a little bit beyond our control. And so it really feels like a a kind of nurturing relationship that you're providing. Um and then those tidbits, you know, can you can sort of it's the thing you can walk into a dinner party with and say, Well, my cats consume more than I do <laughs> <laughs> Here's how I found that out. <laughs>
1: Yeah, it's uh, I mean, one of the highest compliments for me is when people say that my books aren't preachy. And I really, right. I'm really happy when people say that. Or, you know, with this most recent book, you know, people have said it's fun, it's entertaining. One person wrote and said it's a wild ride, it's a mm-hmm. page turner. You know, like, like, uh, those are the things I'm shooting for. In fact, I actually had a sticker as I was writing this book, I had a sticker, a little post-it note strip on the top of my laptop screen that said, entertain me. And that was <laughs> my daily reminder that there was a reader out there, um, who might want, you know, might be interested in the subject and want the information that I had to share, but they also were reading a book and they wanted to enjoy that experience, uh, as a reader. And I was really trying to keep that top of mind. Mm -hmm. But not as succeeded is, you know, is for them to judge.
0: Yeah, it did work for sure. And I think the other thing you do is is you bring in these characters that are so compelling and seem so out of this world. Um, So we've got, say, Dillinger at Levi's. We've got... um, who's a character who's decided not to look at advertisements and has like constructed her life in a way to avoid as many advertisements as possible. How do you find these characters? And then how do you go about drawing them in the actual um, writing process?
1: Uh, I mean, I find them through, (laughs) through the same kind of process, right? I mean, I, I have this theme. I'm say, say it's a chapter. I'll know that I want the chapter to be dealing with a certain theme associated with, with consumption in the case of the latest book. And, um, and then I'm looking for stories that will uh, illuminate that theme. And within those stories, I'm looking for, you know, some interesting characters that might, that might, you know, contribute to that. And so um, it's really just that process of hunting, you know, Truffle hunting through <laughs> the stories that are available until I find this, you know, the story that's interesting enough and the the character that's interesting enough. So, you know, in the case of this book, I mean, I'd be in different countries and I I, I wouldn't have uh, I wouldn't have a an onward ticket. I would just get to the country and I'd stay until I had that <laughs> and uh, you know, until I found the person um, and you know, some of them were, were very lucky finds. I mean, Oppenheim was, I, I I found her through a network of people in the UK that are all kind of interested in this issue of consumerism, but who, almost all of whom used to work in the advertising or the public relations industries. So through them, you know, I, somebody led me to, to her and then our it was actually only in our conversation that she suddenly in fact towards the end of our conversation that she said oh I've been like basically practicing I've had like a personal life practice of avoiding advertising and I was just like oh <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> tell me more about that and uh, and it was I mean it was that aspect of it was luck but I do find that you know you tend to you don't get as much luck if you're not really digging,
0: right? And that means talking to people mostly, I would imagine.
1: Yeah, talking to people, and uh, well, and also just really like digging down through. It um, actually can come from anywhere. It often does come from talking to people, but it might come from like a single passage or somebody that was interviewed for a for a research paper or. Uh, an academic paper or something like that, or somebody who's just out there in the online world, um, you know, throwing out a couple tweets about about uh, their, their infatuation with Patagonia or something like this. You know, mm-hmm. it's, um, and then in terms of how I sketch those folks, it's pretty much just, I'm trying to give the reader a sense of the kind of impression that they left on me personally. So like the way that Fernanda Pias, this taxi driver in Ecuador that I spent time with. Uh, I mean, she was physically small, but she has this big presence and a lot of boldness. And I just wanted to get that across to the reader quickly and efficiently um, so that she's in their mind's eye as, you know, as, as we hang out all of us together. Um, But I'm also always working towards the themes I'm writing about. So in that regard, there's lots of different things I might have said about Paul Dellinger, who's a VP at Levi's, but on the theme of consumption and deconsumerism and so on, um, it's really relevant that he was homeschooled in a pacific northwest forest where he studied books like marks for beginners as a child <laughs> and that he was dressed mostly in basic black and that he hadn't put his jeans in the washing machine for several years and mm-hmm. you know, those are the details that are really most relevant to the theme as well
0: right of course and will contribute to this kind of compelling nature of these characters you're really pulling out just those key details that keep them in our heads
1: yeah but it's like paul delinger is he's, he's an unusual guy in all kinds of ways. But, <laughs> right. So I mean, I, I could have sketched out different aspects, but, uh, but, you know, of the things that are available, I'm always going to skew towards the ones that are doing work on behalf
0: of what I'm trying to explore. Sure. So then when you find somebody you really want to talk to, and they're hesitant about being interviewed, what do you do in a situation like that?
1: I had a lot of that with this book. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, I had some, I mean, a lot of people just particularly in the realm of business just did not want to go on the record about, you know, saying that they had doubts about consumer culture. Um, and I had other people who didn't like the idea of being in a thought experiment. So Mm. uh, a fair number of people, I just had to let go in that regard. And, and I just had to keep working to find alternatives. Um, you know, it was certainly not easy to find somebody from a major recognizable global brand that wanted to talk about this subject in any kind of honest way. Um, and again, I mean, it's that whole thing of you keep working at it and eventually you get lucky and Levi's agreed to talk to me. Um, so it was, yeah, I don't, there's sort of no magical, no magical process for that. It's just, I just keep digging. <laughs>
0: <laughs> but do you keep digging at the same person? Like if you really <clears throat> think they're important?
1: Sometimes I will. I sometimes do this thing. I call the full court press where I <laughs> will, uh, I'll just contact everybody that I think might be an avenue into a person that's, uh, that's not wanting to talk to me or that is not responding to me. And that usually works. I mean, I'll, I'll contact their secretary, their colleagues, um, their family members, (laughs) whatever it takes. I mean, if there's, if there's somebody I'll reach out to just my network of, you know, network of people that I know and and just see if anybody knows anybody who knows anybody. Um, I'll, I'll make a big effort. And sometimes, well, fairly often that works. Mm -hmm. Uh, I mean, I guess what it, what it, what it indicates to the person on the other side of the full court press is that uh, is that you're really serious and you think they're very important to your work. And Mm -hmm. um, I think ultimately a lot of people feel, um, well, they respect both of those things. They'll respect your, your effort and they'll be flattered by the fact that you think they're essential.
0: Hmm. do you guarantee them anonymity if they're deeply worried
1: I will but I prefer not to use anonymous sources I mean I did do one interview that was completely anonymous um got kind of that corporate scale but I you know I just didn't really want to use that in the end it was good you, you know interesting background and but um uh, I didn't use any portion of it in the end.
0: Okay. And then would you let your interviewees see what you had written before it gets printed?
1: Okay. Um, No, I mean, a lot of the time now, particularly in magazines, you contractually are not permitted to do that. Mm -hmm. Um, But what I will do with people is go back and run through the material. So I'll go back and say, uh, here's what I have you saying and here's the context in which it appears. And, and that's been, I mean, that's a lot of extra work, but it's proved to be really fruitful. Um, because I mean, sometimes people just outright contradict themselves, but fair enough. (laughs) Mm -hmm. I probably outright contradict my I'll probably contradict myself at least once during this conversation. So (laughs) that's, uh, you know, I think it's fair for people to say one thing one day and something else the next. I might have a you know a higher standard for you know if I if I had a politician who'd said something really egregious, I probably wouldn't allow them to walk that back without me using the original statement that I recorded or something like that. But with um, you know kind of everyday people, um, and I I would include a lot of people under that umbrella. I think it's it's fair game um these days particularly to kind of negotiate your your way to a place
0: interesting and i imagine that must be the case a lot of the time given how fraught the subjects you're writing about are
1: yeah but i mean it's if the goal is to accurately represent what people want the world to hear from them then you know i'm that's that's my job. Right. So, Mm -hmm. um, so to me, it's, it's not about losing control. It's about really working to, you know, to honestly represent people and not have them not recognize themselves after the fact. And, and so I've, I've, um, I've, yeah, I've certainly been moving more and more in that direction and occasionally I very rarely, in my because of that, I guess very rarely in my career have I had sources contact me after the fact and say, you know, they felt betrayed or any of these sorts of things. It has happened, um, and it feels awful when it does. Uh, but you know, even even if you try to use a good process, there's still that moment when people crack, you know, crack open the the book or pull up the web page and see the article and. And that, you know, there can be, there can be a shock in that.
0: Yeah. How do you deal with that? Have you had to negotiate relationships after that kind of reaction happens?
1: Yeah, I have. And I usually just walk back through the process and say, um, look, here's all the things we did. Here's all the things I I, I tried to do to make sure that you're accurately re- represented. Here are, you know, here are, here is the recording where you said that thing, <laughs> mm. <laughs> you know, uh, here is the email where you know I offered where I tried to set this in context. so I mean, having a process has always meant that, well, not always, in almost every case, it has resulted in uh, at least a mutual agreement that that I tried um mm-hmm. and it's more often just a case of like I think the part that's really hard to control is just like, how do you, how do you control the, the greatest context? Like I can say, I have you saying words along these lines in this kind of a context in the part of the article that you appear in. But I mean, people might still take deep dissatisfaction from appearing in the article at all when they read the whole thing. So (laughs) that part I can't control.
0: Right. Of course. Yeah. Um, in reading the day, the world stopped shopping, I thought of it as speculative nonfiction in a way Mm -hmm. you're casting forward into this imagined world, but at the same time, you're having to cast backwards all the time to find out how we got to this place where we're imagining this world. So it's a real dance of going back in history and forward into an unknown future. How did you conceive of that? structure and then how did you manage it as you were writing you've
1: probably just articulated it better than i ever did in my (laughs) own mind but um yeah that that's about right um i mean i wanted to i wanted to explore what a lower consuming society might look like and how it might function that was the Mm -hmm. goal of the book and and i wanted that experience to hopefully be entertaining for the reader so it is a it is a big ideas book and it's structured as a thought experiment. And uh, in order to imagine what the world might look like if we stopped shopping uh, without just striding off into the realm of the speculative, I had to inform that with things that have actually happened or to people who actually uh, live lower-consuming lives or things like that. So um, that's that's the approach I took to it was that it would advance, you know, that, that we'd be advancing into this world that has Im- stopped shopping in this imaginative experiment, but that is always going to, we're, we're going to know what direction things are heading only because there is concrete evidence to, that gives us some indication of, of, of what might really happen. So, um, that's, yeah, that's the approach I took to it. And I mean, it was challenging to balance those things. And certainly one of the, you know, the editors were, were good on that. They were always kind of saying, right, but you know, you've been off and roaming the back hills of Japan for five pages. Now you have to bring us back and, and remind us that all of this was in service of trying to understand what, what a future world might look like if we reduce the consumption.
0: Right, which you do so well sometimes, it's just a one line, you know, every once in a while it says, okay, so now it's five days out from us having stopped shopping, what's next? And <laughs> I yeah. was reading that thinking, oh, right, that's what we're doing. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, it often just came down to that. And I mean, that that I really credit the the editors on because they they did keep coming back to me on it. Cause it was pretty hard. It was pretty hard to just, uh, you know, to to write, in um, you know to write about a, a basically a, a field report or to write about something that played out in the past and then and then to kind of tag on a line saying you know see that's that's what would happen <laughs> <You know>? <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> that, that tells us that that's what that kind of thing might happen if um, but they they kept on me and it, and it often did just come down to uh, a line or two just to bring the reader back to that that, uh, flow through thread. Mm -hmm.
0: Do you have authors that you kind of turn to when you're thinking about big structural issues like this, or even just the kind of act of synthesizing a lot of data into a thought experiment type structure? I don't really.
1: Um, Mostly I just pay a lot of attention to what makes writing tick in general. So um, if I'm reading anything from fiction to uh, literary nonfiction to just reporting um, if it's affecting me then I will often kind of pause and try to explore and understand why it's affecting me so like what did they do you know mm-hmm. <laughs> what did this person do to make me feel this way and and uh, but it there's no individual uh, or group of individual writers that I that I go back to all the time saying like, well, they know how to solve this. Um, there's a couple that I probably go back to m- more than others. Um, at, or at least at different times I have one is, uh, Richard Kapuscinski, um, David Foster Wallace's magazine nonfiction is just, uh, you know, a real, it's, you know, just, <laughs> there's so much to learn about, um, about structure mm, in, in mm. his stuff. And um, there's a nature writer named David Quammen, Um But I mean, I wouldn't say that any of these, uh, mainly what I, what I look at is just whatever I'm reading. And I, it re- really encourages me to read kind of widely and randomly mm-hmm. um, because I feel like I learn more that way.
0: Do you take book recommendations from other people, other writers, friends?
1: Yeah, sometimes. But I mean, my my, my reading patterns are very random. Like um, I really just think that reading is all about encountering the right book at the right time. (laughs) And I think I just have my antenna up for that and it can be anything. So, I mean, if somebody mentions a book of poems and it's like, I just feel like right now that's what I feel like I should read then that's what I go do. And then one of the things that often happens is I'm reading something and it mentions another thing and I think, oh yeah, um, I should check that out. So it's a, it's pretty, it's, I just drift. <laughs> mm-hmm. I, very rarely do I settle on like one author and read a bunch of their work, though um, mm-hmm. so that happens too.
0: Well, that's nice to hear because it sounds like there's still joy in reading for you. And I think sometimes authors feel like reading is a bit of a job. It's work. And we do have to do it for research, but then we start to feel obligated around reading.
1: Yeah, I tend to find that I'm a lot less well-read than than a lot of authors. So I think I just read less. Um, because of that, I don't, I don't like reading to feel like a job. And Mm -hmm. I don't think I get that much out of it if I'm just packing books into my head. Mm -hmm. So I take a, in the same way that, that uh, my book talks about the consumption of fewer, better things. I think I try to consume, you know, fewer, better words. (laughs) Oh, I love that. (laughs) I I, I do try to, you know, in the same way that, um, you know, some characters in the book talk about how they try to curate what goes into their head I think I've been kind of practicing that for a long time Mm -hmm.
0: so I have a question that perhaps is a silly one on the surface but does I think get at maybe some issues around craft and also thinking about your audience and that is how is it for you to write a book about consumption and ultimately imagining a world where we reduce our consumption And yet having to then go and sell that product on the market.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I mean, that was going to be a problem right from the get go. Right. Yeah. And and in fact, all environmental writing seems to have that problem where, you know, people say you can write a book about uh, climate change and people say like, Oh, how often do you drive your car? You know, like, you know, when, (laughs) when I wrote the 100 mile diet with my partner, Lisa Smith, um, I mean, we, for some time after that, I mean, we couldn't go out for sushi in Vancouver without somebody walking by and saying like, Oh, I see you're eating tuna. Yeah. So it's uh, I mean, I I completely understand it. And, um, and, and it's probably fair uh, to some extent, but um, you know, it's (laughs) we're writing in an imperfect world about a world that we hope will be better. And we all live in this imperfect one. So, um you know it's uh, i don't let it bother me too much um and for this book i mean i actively avoided positioning myself as a preacher right i mean i didn't want to say this book is not i don't think at any point a book that talks about how great i am at not consuming too much and mm-hmm. how you should feel bad unless you consume as little as i do um in this book i'm much you know my voice to the extent that I appear in it at all is much more journalistic and that I'm investigating this question that involves all of us, myself included.
0: Yeah. And I think that gets at, um, you know, how you're thinking about your audience in advance and how you're caring for them and, you know, you, this happens with everything you write about, right, you're writing about nature and, and food consumption and, and general consumption, everybody is going to have an opinion on this and everybody is affected by it. So naturally, readers are going to come to your books with maybe with their backup, maybe with an open mind, but whatever the case, they're going to come out with a stance. And so perhaps in pulling your voice back, you are really caring for your reader in advance of, of writing to them.
1: I mean I want people to make up their own minds I kind of want to walk them through the information and the experiences that I had that make me somebody who's potentially worth listening to on the subject um but ultimately yeah I mean it's up it's up it's up to them and um that's yeah I guess that's just how I've always approached well probably not how I've always approached writing but it's certainly how I've evolved into approaching writing that uh um I think the position that I'm right <laughs> and they're somehow wrong and need to be schooled ignores the fact that we're all in, we're all at different points in the process of understanding the world around us. So, you know, after working for a few years on a book, I'm at a point in the process where I'm pretty well informed and I you know, I have, uh, I have opinions that I think I can, you know, that I've thought through to a pretty, to a pretty good degree. And, but my readers are, you know, many of them will be at highly disparate points in that same kind of process. Some of them are probably right up where I am. Some of them have never thought about consumption as a problem before, well, you know, I was at that place at some point in my life. <laughs> so, <laughs> I mean, it's kind of like, you know, why would I judge? Why would I judge people for that? Right. Why would I judge people for where they're at on the process? People focus on all kinds of different, on all kinds of different things. I, I, really. I'm just grateful if somebody picks up the book and starts to read it at all.
0: Of course. <laughs> How long did it take you to write this book?
1: Oh, that's a hard question. <laughs> <laughs> I don't really know. I mean, it, it, Um, it sold to a publisher in October, 2018, I think, but I mean, I had done a lot of groundwork up to that point. Um, so I'm going to say, you know, probably kind of 2016 and kind of all my life (laughs) as I've been thinking about this subject. Since I was a child, like since literally since I was a tween, I have been thinking. Um, I've been thinking about consumption.
0: Wow, what are you working on now?
1: Right now, I'm recovering from this book, <laughs> and uh, <laughs> um, and but I'm right now. I'm actually trying to do some writing that's just whatever I want to write about. In, basically i'm trying to give myself maximum freedom right now so i'm okay i'm assigning myself stories that i'm just really drawn to um however kooky they may be and giving myself no word limits and uh just seeing where it goes so it's fun <laughs> <Good>. <laughs> yeah no it's really fun like i'm all i can say about one of these things is uh it's a story about cows. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> I mean, I don't know if I've had this much fun writing about a subject in ages, because there's a, there's a story, like a real yarn at the heart of it. And it's just one of these things where every person I've called has been amazing. Wow. <laughs> and, uh, it's a, uh, and it's all around this, you know, such a humble subject, you know, cows. And yeah. and it's full of surprises. So anyway, I'm <laughs> I, I don't even know if it'll ever get published. But uh, right now it's at twelve
0: thousand words. So Whoa.
1: so probably not. But uh, <laughs> it probably won't get published at that length. But hopefully it'll show up somewhere.
0: A cow chat book, perhaps. <laughs> yeah. exactly. <laughs> well, I'm excited. I'm gonna look forward to it. Being a prairie girl, of course. Mm-hmm. So you have some tips for us. Sure.
1: I do have some tips. Actually, I actually have to look at a piece of paper to see what these are. Um, <laughs> okay. So my first tip, and I mean, feel free to respond to these, but uh, my first tip is that uh, is to focus as, at least as much on developing beautiful structure as on beautiful language. Mm. Carry on to number two.
0: Well, I just I like to sit with that for a minute. I, I don't know <laughs> if you want to elaborate. Uh,
1: I mean, really, I just in teaching and in general, I guess, in the reading of work, I find I often find that people have have uh, invested a lot of effort into making their sentences beautiful and the language they use you know, their, their word choice, really thoughtful and beautiful, and they've invested a lot less effort into um, creating a structure for those words that really gives them maximum impact and effect. And, um, and it's really my, it's my feeling that that a lot of the beauty and a lot of the power that language has to affect us comes from structure
0: mm-hmm i agree with you there i'm a structure fanatic do, do you i don't want to put you on the spot but do any does anything come to mind a particular article or book that stays with you because of its structure
1: oh um no okay. <laughs> i'm trying to think if anything comes to mind
0: um or writers uh, who have mastered structure perhaps
1: well i mean i think that's what i found so fascinating about like um Ryszard Kapuscinski, the Polish literary journalist, was just how how much of the force of his writing comes from <clears throat> from when you know when he where how he places and orders material, um, but even something as classic as like The Orchid Thief uh, by Susan Orleans. um, I mean, as a magazine article. I often ask students to read it if they're, you know, if they're really bound up in the idea of of having to use a large vocabulary and really, you know, sort of beautiful, beautifully written words. Uh, I mean, if you look at that, if you look at that article, the all of the language is very simple mm-hmm. and yet it's memorable. The characters are you know, really kind of leap up off the page. The action is fascinating. Uh, I mean, it's just a wonderful piece of magazine writing. It's the structure that gives it most of its force, I think.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, I love that. Okay, number two.
1: Number two, this one's pretty practical, but um, I think early in a writer's career, they should try to find an opportunity to write and or edit a lot of words, uh, because repetition really helps, helps you, helps reveal what makes structure and language work. So mm. I, I've had, I had a lot of opportunities like that early on. I was, you know, editing, um, at Monday magazine and editing at Adbusters, And so I got to write and read you know, often, you know, tens of thousands of words, a week, and it was really valuable to me.
0: So you're not saying, uh, write or edit a piece on, that is on its own a lot of words, say a twenty thousand words no, no, or something. No, yeah, no, just to, yeah, just, to just...
1: just to move through a lot of volume. <laughs> yeah, um, you know, to I, I think there's just I think this is why a lot of really great writers come out of uh, newspapering, right? Just because mm-hmm. they've just had to crank out a lot of words and. Uh, that can be a little bit dulling, but it's certainly really helpful in terms of just getting that basic understanding of what makes language work.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, it's like the Beatles playing, you know, 300 concerts a year at the Cavern Club, right? That's why they're a good band. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Or like
1: yeah. S. Thompson apparently typed out uh, The Great Gatsby before right. he wrote Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. Uh, you know, it's just those sorts of practices are really you know, I think they're really essential.
0: Yeah. And, and if someone can't edit in a professional capacity, would you say they should just read something that exists already and try to edit that?
1: Yeah, sure. I mean, I think just anything that allows you to work through a volume of words, you know, like different kinds. Um, I mean, even just really active reading can do this, but, mm-hmm. uh, in the absence of the opportunity to just write a lot or to, I mean, journaling can even do it. Um, But I I feel like journaling doesn't work quite as well because it's not, you know, it's, there's only one reader.
0: Right. Yeah.
1: You know, the feedback is limited. (laughs) (laughs) uh,
0: (laughs) What do you think? I think it's great. (laughs) I think it's wonderful. Yeah.
1: The whole committee have won. Yeah. It's fabulous.
0: Yeah. Number
1: three number three, if you can, at times in your career as a writer, invest in yourself at those points where you want to expand your horizons. So uh, as an example of this, I did my my first real foreign reporting trip was to South Sudan. And I did that on my own dime, running it on a shoestring. And I think I walked away with a profit of about $100. <laughs> uh, but publishing that feature made editors like suddenly take me seriously for that kind of work. Um, And there's been a couple of points along the way where, where that's been the case where I've kind of, uh, you know, almost like the way that you would save up to go to university or something like that. You know, I've saved up money to, to invest in a project of my own that makes me reach beyond where I am in my career.
0: I really like that it's we rarely talk about the cost of writing for writers Mm -hmm. and (laughs) (laughs) I mean we talk about it in our paychecks (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Um, but that's such a lovely way to put it that you it is an investment in yourself and sometimes it's a monetary investment that will eventually come back in other ways
1: Mm -hmm.
0: yeah yeah exactly
1: so number four is uh Is to pay really close attention to your process as you write, so that you learn what works for you. So, uh, and in this case, I'm talking about your writing conditions. (laughs) Like, Mm -hmm. I mean, I think I think often people, including myself, uh, maybe I'm just speaking for myself here, but when I was, you know, an emerging writer, I would kind of look at, I'd read biographies and see under what conditions people wrote and, you know, and I think since those tend to be romanticized, they're often kind of dramatic. And in the end, you know, I need a hard chair and a cold office and (laughs) it's early in the morning. I, you know, I re my work life is disciplined and boring and (laughs) it's not cool. uh, But for me, that's what produces the best work. And I've really tried to be pay attention to that, you know, throughout, throughout my career. And I continue, I'm like, I'm starting to wonder if I still need the hard chair. (laughs) 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 It's like, do I really need? But, um, but, you know, there's, I think that's really, it's really important to know whether, um, you know, you can write with a hangover or not, or, (laughs) you know, all of these little details that come together to help you produce your your best work because uh, producing your best work is where voice and style comes from. So it's just, you know, that you just want to put yourself in that position as often as you can, the, the mm-hmm. position of, of uh, being able to write your best.
0: Mm-hmm. Great.
1: Number five is don't take it all too seriously. <laughs> <laughs> and I remember talking to uh, Ronald Wright author of many books. And I remember him just telling me like he finishes an article or even finishes writing a book. And he basically just moves on mentally. Like he doesn't worry too much if it succeeds or fails. He, you know, by the time he told me this, he'd written enough things that uh, he's just like, you know, some of them succeed, some of them fail. You can't predict it a lot of the time. And, uh, I found that a really helpful mindset, you know, just sort of do, do my job. And then, and then I'm done, (laughs) you know, and I can kind of move on. What am I going to do next? Uh, and it keeps me from obsessing too much about, about getting the language perfect or the little glitches that inevitably are found after you've published or people's reactions, all of that. And, uh, also, I also think it's made me fairly easy to work with. (laughs) <laughs> which is, which is pretty valuable, you know. I mm-hmm. think it's it's valuable to have editors and publishers who uh, who think, oh, yeah, know, we could we could get this guy to do it. He's mm-hmm. he's not he's not going to jump up and down too much if uh, you know if if we reinsert a typo that he corrected.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's really smart, and it also allows you to to think about that project that was distracting you the whole time you were working on the thing that you had gotten sick of. That's right. yeah Yeah. it allows you
1: (laughs) to move on to the cows right after the consumerism yeah
0: exactly (laughs) yeah the perfect pairing yeah well thank you this was so lovely i enjoyed talking to you so much
1: appreciate it yeah it's fun fun to talk about these things usually because I write about issues I only get to talk about issues I know (laughs) (laughs) I never get to talk about writing or being a writer or any of these fun things and uh, I'm always like looking at the fiction writers going like yeah well I think that too (laughs) (laughs) exactly like that yeah. angry guy shouting at jeopardy on tv um, <laughs> now's your yeah. chance but yeah this was a real pleasure thanks so much
0: well i think everyone's gonna love it and such great tips for our students so thank you again thank you if you're interested in writing nonfiction, the university of king's college mfa in creative Nonfiction might be for you find out more at ukings.ca slash mfa And if you'd like to hear more book related conversations, check out Bookings, the podcast of our friends at the King's Co op Bookstore. That's it for today's show. Thanks to J.B. McKinnon for talking to us. His latest book, The Day the World Stops Shopping How Ending Consumerism Saves the Environment and Ourselves, is available from Random House. Further reading is produced by the University of King's College MFA program in creative nonfiction. Our editor is Samantha Hepperly. Music by Pete Johnston. Graphics by Mike Smith. I'm your host, Gillian Turnbull. Thanks for joining us. See you next time.